Mark chapter 11, verses 12 to 26. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly, I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. When our world is turned upside down, what really matters? Well, that's the question that we're asked really in Mark chapter 11. That's what we're going to look at this evening. And you'll see Mark 11 starts uh, at verse 12, where we're starting with that little phrase, the next day. So what we're reading in this passage follows on from Palm Sunday. It follows on from the chapter that we were looking at this morning. Uh, So with a day after Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and now Jesus Christ walks into Herod's temple and he quite simply turns everything upside down. That's a, a bit of a habit of Jesus, isn't it? Turning things upside down. It's his speciality, you might say. You know, Jesus stands up for the people who we look down on. He touches the untouchable. In the Bible, he honours especially women and children. And he dismantles the things that we would like to rely on. And he points us to what really matters. And that's actually exactly what he's doing here in this passage. 
And just maybe that is exactly what's going on in all of our lives now. Because our lives, like the tables in that temple, have certainly been turned upside down. That's one reason why I'm doing this sermon, standing in my lounge, talking to myself. Things are not normal, are they? Our livelihoods, our families, our very futures, well, they're all a bit in chaos, aren't they? In some cases they're destroyed. Do you know, we can't even walk now, can we, into our own church. Just as Jesus stopped people walking through the temple, in verse 16, he stops them walking through the temple courts. So I guess we need to understand why Jesus did what he did. And we'll see that Jesus uses this incident to set out for us what really matters in life. He's going to use this uh, this hoo-ha in the temple uh, and the incident with the fig tree to tell us that our life and our, and our future, they don't depend on lots of activity uh, and busyness, whether it's inside or outside the church. But actually our future depends on faith, prayer and forgiveness. Those three things. Now we're going to come to that later on but first let's just rewind and go back to what was happening in the temple in this chapter remember the temple is huge it's huge and awe-inspiring Jesus has been there many times since he was a nipper and he's been seen it he's seen it being built up around him he's seen the big blocks of stone being brought in literally individual bricks or stones the size of a house the whole temple complex the whole temple complex covered a huge area about the size of Hove Park if you don't live in Hove you're going to have to look that up but that was the sort of area that the temple complex covered and the buildings were covered in white marble uh, and gold and contemporary writers said it was like a, a, a snowy mountain in the distance that they could look at when they could see Herod's temple glinting uh, in the sunlight it was supposed to be awe-inspiring it was supposed to be awesome it was supposed to be indestructible it was supposed to be a real symbol of worship to the great God of Israel and that's why Jesus says in verse 17 that the temple was to be a house of prayer for all nations because it was to attract people in and especially into this court where the action happened the court of Gentiles the largest area in the temple where people from all nations could come and learn about and worship the one true God so it was supposed to be a bit like this but instead the building has become a marketplace And it looks more like this. So you look at verse 15. It tells us that traders were were selling animals for the sacrifices that were needed there. They were changing money uh, so that people could get the right currencies, like a foreign exchange desk, uh, to pay the the temple tax. Uh, 
Verse 16, we touched on that earlier, it's being used as a shortcut. It got in the way of the temple between two busy parts of uh, inner and outer Jerusalem. So people used to go through taking their stuff with them. So there was lots of activity, there was lots of bustle. It must have been a really exciting place to be, there was lots going on. And it was all supporting the temple worship. The money was going towards the temple. It was supporting the costs of the clergy. It was keeping people busy. It was doing some good stuff. Lots and lots of activity. But what does Jesus do? He looks around and he turns it upside down. What's happened to the prayer, he asks. You can see that in verse 17. Where are the nations who are supposed to be here praying? You are robbers, he says. They weren't necessarily robbing each other, but they were robbing God. People can't get to meet with God. There's too much stuff in the way. You're too busy with all this other stuff. Well, that's a question for all of us too, isn't it? Now we're taken away from all the activity of life, whether in church or or, or out of church, we've left it behind, many of us, all the programmes, all the business, and we sort of say, well, what was the point of it all? Did I really have the right priorities? What was most important to me in all that stuff that I've been doing? Was it uh, for the sake of the activity itself? Was it for the sake of the church? Was it for the sake of me? Or was Jesus Christ at the centre of everything that I did? And it's tempting to, to look at this little passage and say, well, you know, this is Jesus talking to people who aren't like me. He's talking to the people who are the money changers and the people who are you know, making money out of selling uh, doves or whatever. But look at verse 15. There are the people who are buying the sacrifices. People who are going into worship, who are part of the system. Might have seemed an okay thing to do to them. But Jesus says, no, and he turns the tables over. And Jesus rams this message home with this incident of the fig tree. Really, this, uh, the, these two episodes in this chapter are two acted out parables. What he's doing is symbolic. If you think that the, uh, the temple was the size of Hove Park, um, the court of the Gentiles was probably about half the size. It was a huge area. Well, there's no way Jesus could have turned over every single table uh, in a space of that size. Business would have gone back to normal very quickly. But it was a symbolic action that he wanted us to learn from. And that's why we get the fig tree as well. Because look at verse 13. The fig tree is in leaf. Jesus goes over to it to look for fruit. Uh, And Mark very specifically points out that it's not the season for fruit. But so what? The passage we heard this morning, verse 2, Jesus rides on an unbroken colt through what must have been a virtual riot. By all laws of nature, uh, that horse, that colt should have thrown him off like a, like a buckaroo. But it doesn't. It carries the Lord of creation. By all laws of nature, that fig tree should not have had fruit on it. 
but the Lord of creation goes to it and yet it is still fruitless it should have had fruit but it didn't and the result of that you can see in verse 14 the result of that is that the fig tree is condemned and then we have the bit in the temple don't we and we go back to verse 20, 21 uh, within a few hours that tree is completely dead that's quite important you know I try and grow tomatoes occasionally in the summer uh, nearly always sooner or later they begin to go a bit wilty at the edges a bit yellow and slowly uh, they collapse and die this fig tree was completely and utterly dead within hours it was condemned for its fruitful, fruitlessness so do you see the parable? parallel both the temple and the tree promised much but delivered nothing both look fruitful both lots going on but no fruit both should have delivered for their master but they didn't and we are supposed to think about that that's why the story is here all show no delivery now later on quite soon Jesus is going to tell us how we do live a fruitful and godly life but first we're to understand that Israel's old way of worship their so-called religion may have looked good but it actually did nothing at all to bring people to God and so Jesus will abolish it we know that within a few days the curtain in the Holy of Holies in the middle of the temple and you've gone through the court of the Gentiles you've gone through the court of the women you've gone through the court of the Jewish men you've gone past the altar and you get to the Holy of Holies in the centre of the temple that curtain will be split in two the whole system of the temple is abolished because it doesn't make sense after Jesus has died his sacrificial death makes all of that completely redundant this is if you like a zombie religion there's a lot of talk at the moment about zombie businesses well this is a zombie religion there's stuff happening but it's doomed it'll carry on another 35 years of of worship in the temple but after that the Romans destroy it forever Matthew Henry says Jesus came seeking fruit and he found none so he found plenty of leaves plenty of activity but no fruit well for many of us that activity has been forced to stop hasn't it our tables have been overturned our lives have been stripped right back and we have no choice but to think about what really matters in our lives suddenly and what really matters in our lives is what Jesus is going to talk about next because of the rest of this reading is about what a fruitful life looks like and the great news for us right now is that we don't need buildings we don't need lots of activity we don't need all that other stuff to live fruitful lives
Because from verse 22, Jesus is going to talk about three things that we need. And those three things are faith, prayer and forgiveness. And those three, they sort of interlock. It's like one of those puzzles you get at uh, Christmas, you know, that you have to sort of disentangle them. uh, And you can't tell which bit is which. They all seem to be one, but you know they'll come apart somewhere. So it is with these three of faith, prayer and forgiveness that Jesus talks about. So it doesn't really matter where we start. But I'm going to start with prayer. And J.C. Ryle says, quite simply, you can't be a Christian if you don't pray. Simple as that. And that's because prayer is simply talking to God. And we are saved by talking to God. It's that easy. We ask God for forgiveness. We ask God to be saved. And at that point, we are adopted as his children. So prayer is just talking to God. We can't be a Christian without praying. And of course, Once we are adopted as his children, well, it's the most natural thing in the world that we should talk to him. We should want to talk to him. So as Christians, we pray. So what does Jesus tell us about prayer in in these few verses? Well, firstly, he tells us that it's for everyone. It's not just for the vicar. You know, we've just had our first Zoom prayer meeting at Bishop Hannington first time ever and uh, a record number of people praying Uh, I think was it 114 people joining in that prayer meeting and not just in Brighton and Hove but uh, uh, across Europe well that's what we do as believers we pray that's why Jesus says in verse 25 when he's introducing this he says when you pray not if you get round to it But when you pray, it's going back to that verse in verse 17 again, when Jesus says the temple courts were supposed to be a house of prayer for all nations. We all pray. That's the first point. The second point is that Jesus says we need to have the right attitude when we do pray. Now that's why I think he talks about standing in verse 25 Um, standing for prayer uh, that's a bit like standing up when someone comes into the room isn't it it's it's a mark of respect it's it's not so much in vogue now but that's what it meant now I don't think we do tend to stand in our culture now for prayer but nonetheless it's a reminder isn't it that when we pray we are approaching our almighty God I think we like to think of prayers as um, you know, a, a cosy conversation with our Heavenly Father. And that's true. But this is a Heavenly Father who's not sitting in an armchair, but he's sitting on his throne. So just a reminder, I think, from Jesus there, uh, that we come to God with the right attitude of respect. I wonder actually whether we need to make it easier uh, to kneel in church for prayer. We, we, we tend not to, do we? But... Um, It it might be a good thing to do more often as we remember exactly the great God that we are praying to. So, uh, a proper attitude to prayer. Uh, It's going to involve uh, respect. 
But the other two elements that Jesus talks about that it will involve are faith and forgiveness. And we know about praying for forgiveness, don't we? Because we we pray that in the Lord's Prayer. We, We say, forgive our sins as we forgive others. And Jesus is making the same point again. Heard the other day, when you read things more than once in the Bible, it means it's really important. So here we have it again in verse 25. We ask our Father for forgiveness as we forgive other people. We're good at talking about forgiveness. We like talking about forgiveness. Uh, There's a famous C.S. Lewis quote which we've used before. It's become quite familiar, isn't it? It says, uh, we all agree that forgiveness is a beautiful idea until we have to practice it. That was quite a familiar quote. One I came across that I hadn't heard before uh, is where he says, to be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you and me. It's lovely to know that we are forgiven, isn't it? But but we pass that on. We pass that forgiveness on, a bit like a child's game of, of pass the parcel of children's party. We move it on. However slighted we may feel, and, and it isn't easy. I think I used to feel I was quite good at forgiving, but I'm not sure I am, actually. And the devil doesn't want us to make it easy. He wants to make it difficult for us. It's interesting, when we look back on, on the Alpha course, we always uh, get the feedback that the, I think it's week two, is it? When we talk about forgiveness, maybe week three, week three, we talk about forgiveness. Um, that is the one that people find most difficult. And you can imagine when we're talking about, uh, there's the famous interview with Corrie Ten Boom, isn't there? Talking about how she has to forgive the SS guard who killed her sister uh, and how difficult it is. But in Jesus, God has forgiven the inexcusable in me. So I forgive much lesser things in other people. So, three things. We pray, we forgive, and we have faith. Have faith in God, says Jesus, in verse 22. That's not a sort of wishful thinking, happy-go-lucky phrase. A lot of those around at the moment, aren't there? You know, there's hope at the end of the rainbow, see you on the other side, keep safe. When Jesus says, have faith in God, it's not like giving you a Big Mac and saying, have a nice day. This is a command. Jesus says, have faith. And I think we're okay with that until we get to a verse like verse 23, which sort of worries us, doesn't it? What about this business about throwing mountains around? We don't find we could do that very easily, do we? And then we read verse 24, that seems to make it worse. It says, I just have to believe a little bit more. Perhaps I just need to screw up a little bit more faith and what I want will really happen. And I think when we start thinking like that, well, we're into sort of Star Wars territory, aren't we? And and Luke Skywalker trying to master the force or or Matilda trying to levitate her piece of chalk. If only she could concentrate on it enough. We need to remember 
what faith is really all about right through the Bible. Faith in God is about abiding in his love, leaning on the everlasting arms, as the Puritans put it. Catholics talk about entering into a trusting relationship with God. So moving mountains, well, it's an expression. It's, it's a way of talking about perhaps achieving things beyond our imagination, having boundless faith. Alistair McGrath describes faith, I like this phrase, as trusting in the presence, the power and the promises of God. Isn't that good? We trust in the presence, the power and the promises of God. And we may not see dramatic answers. I've just been reading Hebrews chapter 11, uh, that long list of people of faith. And it's very striking when you read that, some of them, like Abraham and Moses, they had these huge dramatic events in their life where their faith wrought fantastic miracles or whatever. But as you get to the end of the chapter, there's lists of people without any names who lived and died out their lives in difficult circumstances, but in faith, trusting in God. They were depending on God. They were in that trusting relationship. I don't know where anybody's seen uh, the English game on Netflix. Just started screening a uh, sort of history of uh, football. Um, spoiler alert coming up, but I don't think it matters too much. Uh, so it's set in something like the 1880s. And at one point, there's a, an out of work uh, mill worker. Uh, called Jim, he's got no money, he's got no prospects, no, no hope at all really. And he comes to a wealthy banker with a plan for a new factory. And it's his only hope to build a future for himself. And he knows he's got nothing much to offer. And he knows there's no reason for this aristocratic young man to back him. But suddenly, dramatically, this is a spoiler, but never mind, um, the rich banker agrees. And he stands up in front of lots of other people and he says, Jim is now my partner. My wealth is his. And of course, a life-changing moment for Jim. Jim can now live out his life trusting in those great riches promised to him by someone present with the power to help him. That's the picture of faith that Jesus talks about here. Our time is gone. Let me, let me wrap up. Let me try and pull it together. When our world is turned upside down, what really matters? Well, Jesus turns lives upside down. And he says, I don't want religion. I don't want you rushing around doing lots of stuff necessarily. I don't want you relying on anything except those everlasting arms of God. And that means we trust him. We ask for his forgiveness. We forgive other people. And we pray with faith to our Lord. And we have faith in his presence, in his power and in his promises. And the great news today is that we can live like that. We can do all that. Every one of us right where we are today and for the rest of this week and for the rest of lockdown.
آمین